Welcome back to QAV. This is episode 523 of our little investing podcast. Uh, we have a bit of a, an unusual episode today. Instead of our normal talk about the news and Q&A kind of thing, we just got an interview this week. Um, as you may have heard, I'm uh, traveling in the United States for a month at the moment. So uh, we're going to put out a couple of pre-recorded interviews while I'm traveling and do Q&A episodes and regular episodes uh, when I'm in one place and have Wi-Fi. Um, our special guest today is an icon of the banking and finance industry in Australia, Dr. Jenny Fagg, also known as Tony's wife. Uh, Jenny is a very experienced CEO, senior executive in banking and finance. She has been the chief risk officer of AMP. She was the EVP of products and payments at CIBC, one of Canada's top five banks. She was the CEO and managing director of the ANZ National Bank Limited, New Zealand's largest bank. She was the managing director of ANZ Consumer Finance in Australia before that. Before that, she'd been in senior roles at Citibank and KPMG. She has a PhD in management and a Bachelor of Economics. She's also a director of the National Breast Cancer Foundation, a member of Chief Executive Women in Australia, and is the author of a book, an art book, called The Gist of Generosity. So let's get into it. Welcome to the show, Jenny Fagg. How are you, Jenny? Thank you. Fine form. Uh, Tony, this is Jenny. Jenny, this is Tony. <laughs> oh, she looks like the man of my dreams. <laughs> oh, wow, that's good. I'll, I'll just sit back now. My, my work's done. I've had my reward. Thanks for coming on, hon. <laughs> You're welcome, dear. You're welcome. Oh, so that was for Jenny. <laughs> It's timely to have you on the show, Jen, because you have just launched or are about to launch a new company. Can you tell us about 2B Financial, please? Yeah, thank you. It's very exciting. We've been working on building a lending business. It's called 2B Finance. It's all about helping affluent Australians between the ages of 55 and 75 to use the equity in their own home to help their kids up the housing ladder. I'm working with some former senior executive banking colleagues. So we've got decades of experience and we all have our own kids. So it's close to our hearts. So you've said a few things there. It sounds like it's a reverse mortgage product, Jen. Is that what it is? Yeah, it's not a traditional reverse mortgage. Perhaps if I give you a bit of detail on the product. In terms of the loan, it's called 2B Equity Advantage. It's a five-year fixed-rate home equity loan for amounts up to $500,000 with a fixed rate of 5.95%. So it's a five-year term loan. There is the option to capitalise interest, uh, which means you don't have to make interest-only payments throughout that five years. But if customers choose to, then they get a discount of 25 basis points on the interest rate. Unlike standard bank loans, uh, we do the credit assessment based on the customer's assets rather than income. So people don't have to prove income to show they can service the loan as long as they have assets. More than a million dollars property value plus other significant net assets. 
it's a quick and easy digital application process, which people can do online, but we aren't for everybody. As I already mentioned, that we do require a property value of more than a million dollars. Specifically, how does it compare to a traditional reverse mortgage? Traditional reverse mortgages are designed for customers who have cash flow problems. So they have equity in their house, but they want to stay in their house, but don't typically have the cash to manage the daily expenses. With our product, because it's a five-year term loan, we're really a bridging loan. So we're designed for people who over the next five years expect that they'll want to use the funds now, but be able to repay it in five years. So that's probably the main difference. We also offer a fixed rate, whereas a traditional reverse mortgage is a variable or fluctuating rate. So what happens at the end of five years? Do I repay the loan, get a new loan from you, or just hand in the keys to the house? (laughs) In your case, darling, you could hand me keys to the house. But in terms of most people at the end of five years, (laughs) most of the people we've spoken with have been talking of using this equity advantage loan to set up the bank of mum and dad. So it's to help their kids with the deposit to get on the housing ladder. So at the end of five years, there's a fair chance if the parent has taken the loan out to give the deposit to the kids, the kids will be able to refinance their own home loan and give the loan back to their parents. So there's kind of a natural over five years of houses appreciate kids will get them funds together and pay back mum and dad. So that's one way. People can actually use the funds for anything. So they may choose to take a loan now, knowing they're planning to sell their owner occupier or where they live within the next five years. So it's to bring forward cash now from that sale. So when they sell and downsize, they use those funds to pay back the loan. Another way people are planning to pay down the loan is to liquidate their other assets. So if they have superannuation or, sorry to say this to you both, but a share portfolio, they may choose to sell some of those assets to refund, to pay back the loan. Alternatively, they could roll into a a traditional reverse mortgage. Mm. Well, you spoke about the bank of mum and dad there, and that's, that's a topical thing. We've been talking a long time about that. And if people are thinking of taking your product out to use to help their children get onto the property ladder, what kind of risks are involved in that and how can they be mitigated? Yeah, so there are are risks with with this product as with any product. The main one is that people need to pay back the loan at the end of five years, obviously, so they need a plan there. In terms of taking out a loan like this where interest capitalises, loan balances go up over time. So compounding interest is a beautiful thing in the investing environment. In the lending environment, it means that your loan balance goes up. But in terms of the risks for the bank of mum and dad in particular, as you know, (laughs) my personal passion is, is trying to work out how we can set up bank of mum and dad in a way that helps parents manage the emotional and financial risks in setting up a family loan. So I've used the years of banking experience and the the PhD in credit risk and lots of research into financial literacy to develop the education tools, tips, traps and a risk questionnaire designed to help people understand the risks of a bank of mum and dad. So a few of those. 
One is if you're wanting to give your child a deposit or money to help towards a deposit to buy their home, you have to work out, are you going to do that as a gift or as a loan? So you could give them the deposit or you could expect them to pay it back. The benefit of the loan, by the way, is you you have asset protection if the couple splits up, which is something you have to think forward to. What happens with family relationships if the couple splits up? Does the child, your child keep the deposit? Does the child's spouse keep half the deposit? It can get quite um, messy. So it's important to think up front about the implications. Another one is what about the siblings of the child? If you give one child help with the deposit, do the other siblings then expect to get help with their deposit? So it can be a bit of a family relationship minefield. Another thing to consider, of course, is can the parent afford to live without the money they're gifting or lending? So once you've given the money to someone, it may never come back. So people just being really conscious that they can afford the the generosity of the deposit. And documentation is key to all that too. If you are loaning a child some money, it should be documented really in terms of not just repayments, but what does it mean? Are you taking equity in the house and what does that mean going forward? What does it mean for estate planning? All that kind of thing comes into play, yeah? Yeah, perfect. So thank you for the prompt, yes. In fact, we have some templates on the website for a standard family loan, which does where you do, people do document the terms of the loan and the understanding. We also, of course, remind everyone to update their wills, both the child and the parent should update their wills when this type of family loan is put in place. And What's really key as well is the discussions, of course. So it's as much about we've provided education to try to help those awkward conversations and guide the discussions between the parent and the child to make sure they do understand the ins and outs of what they're getting into. Very good. And all that's available on your website, which is called? 2b.com.au. So that's digit 2 followed by letters b.com.au. Well, thanks for that. Now, you spoke about your career in banking. Maybe you can give us a a bit of a short journey through your career and background. Thanks. So, yes, I somehow became a banker. It wasn't deliberate. My first job was in HR at Kodak. During my banking career, some of my roles have included the chief executive officer at ANZ National Bank, uh, chief risk officer at AMP. This is after the Royal Commission. And I also ran the retail P&L for one of Canada's big five banks, the IBC. Currently, I'm a non-executive director for Bank of Queensland, and I'm also a director for the National Breast Cancer Foundation. Very impressive. And you have a PhD in risk as well. Yeah, yeah that was fun. And good judgment in men. <laughs> <laughs> I like six foot four redheaded males. I have a type. <laughs> You said you were CEO of ANZ National. That was that was ANZ New Zealand, right? Thank you, yes. That's ANZ National is New Zealand's largest bank, yes. You've got a lot of experience in banking, in running big companies and in boards. One of the topics that we've had questions on and we've been exploring recently is around the benefits to a board of having a, a, a diverse directorship or a diverse membership. That's something that's been a bit of a pet passion for you. Could you tell us what your... I guess, experiences with that and any research you've come across that supports that a diverse board produces better returns than a non-diverse board? Yes. Yeah, so I actually 
did a lot of research into this about a decade ago because I was bemused as, so not just boards, but in senior executive roles. Why were there so few women in the senior roles? And when there was a diverse group of people around a table, why did we seem to get better discussion and leading, to my, in my opinion, to better decisions? So there is research that shows quantitatively that companies that have more senior more women on boards or more senior women do do better. However, what I've tried to do is get down under that to work out why that happens. So I developed what I call a theory of leader diversification, which isn't exactly catchy, but it's all about how do we truly value and use a diversity of thought, experience, skills, uh, approach, attitudes even. So the first thing I concluded was that we have to get rid of style stereotyping. And by that, I mean the view that someone who's successful can only look in one image. So the traditional image of a chief executive officer is white, male, kind of middle to older aged, probably having come through operational role or a chief financial officer role. So part of it is, you know, adapting the view that that's what success looks like. That's one point I'd emphasise. Another is to get the right options on the table, you really need to reflect your customer base. (laughs) You need to reflect your employee base. So to get the portfolio of options on the table when making a decision, you do need that diverse group of people at the table, of course. Then once you have them at the table, it's about making sure everyone can be heard. So it's really consciously managing the dynamic of a group so that every voice is heard and, and people can be, views can be considered. And then the final point I'd make on, you know, Jenny Fagg's theory of leader diversification is that I think diversity reduces the amount of internal competition in a group. So it frees up all that emotional energy from competing with the people who sit next to you. If you all think that you have to be the best at sales, then you'll compete with other each other. Whereas if, you, if it's okay for someone to be good at sales, for someone to be good at operations, for someone to be good at finance, you can all appreciate and praise each other for those strengths, which leads to a much better group dynamic. In terms of uh, us as investors, is there, how can we identify diverse boards? I mean, all we see is a, is a group of photos on the, uh, in the annual report. So is there a way of telling who a diverse board is? Yeah, great question. You'd have to say, well, I think a group of photos showing people who look like they come from different backgrounds is a start because it's it's gender and cultural heritage don't mean that people have different views, but it's more likely if they have come from different experiences. There is reporting, as, as you'd know, on the percentage of women in boards, but that's obviously just one measure. There's a census each year. I guess it comes down to me to the the chair of the board and knowing if they're the type of chair who values diverse thought and challenge, effective challenge. And you cannot get that from looking at a picture in an annual report. (laughs) Can you give us a few examples of chair people who are like that or companies that have diverse boards that we can go and have a look at? Well, the Bank of Queensland board, which I'm on, something and only joined recently, a real attraction was that... Patrick Alloway, the chair, had gone out of his way to hire a diverse board. So there was quite a bit of board turnover. So he was able to bring in people from very different industries with different experiences. 
So that's an example where just looking at the bios, you can tell it's a diverse group of people. And you would think it was a that had to happen by intent by the chair. So it's still a board of bankers, though, isn't it? Who's, who's coming from outside the banking industry on the Bank of Queensland board? Yeah, in fact, it's not. It's certainly not a group of retail bankers. I'm the main retail banker on the Bank of Queensland board. So I'm just looking at a photo of the board of directors on the BOQ uh, website, Jenny, and everyone's wearing charcoal black or like a dark <laughs> navy, except you. You're in a fabulous uh, multi-toned red ensemble. Is uh, that are you trying to tell us something with your choice of uh, dress in these photos? Is this is that a power play to wear the bright red amongst a sea of blacks and navies? If only I, I was that strategic, Cam. No, red happens to suit me and that exact red because I'm a true autumn colour. And that photo would have come from when I worked at CIBC. <laughs> okay. But thank you for noticing. <laughs> it looks fabulous. I thought it, it's, it jumped out. So before you mentioned that there is an index a report, a census of the uh, of female representation on boards, where do we find that? I will grab it and send it through to you. It was initially done by ANZ, actually, when I was at ANZ back in the 2000s. So, And I know it's continued through EOWA, but I'll track it down and send it through. We actually we have a guest coming on the show at some point, Joanna Nash, who wrote an article. She's with Real Index Investments, but she wrote an article a little while ago sort of um, talking about the overperformance of diverse boards uh, in terms of share performance. So, yeah, we're going to have her on to talk about how we track that kind of thing as investors as well. So it'd be good to have access to the data. Give us an insight into uh, what what being on a, a large board means. I mean, you've been on – you would have been involved with the AMP board. You've been on the board of Bank of Queensland. Is it all just uh, lunches and dinners? Yes, I've been on many boards throughout my working career, but always from within the corporate. In terms of Bank of Queensland, that's my first listed board. So I'm talking with the experience of five months here. Gosh, so what's it like coming from an executive role into a director role has been, you know, interesting from going from running the day to day to providing oversight and governance into the strategy. So, you know, at a personal level that, you know, there's a period of adjustment there. I suspect being on the board of a heavily regulated industry like banking would be very different from other boards. We have hundreds, if not thousands of pages of papers each time there's a board meeting. So there is a really big time commitment just in terms of reading all the papers. In in terms of lunches and dinners, (laughs) I'd have to say we're well fed, but (laughs) it, it is a very small component of the work. Something that has been really interesting is that with COVID, we haven't been able to interact with management. I mean, no one's been able to interact, obviously, face to face. So it's been a very different dynamic, you know, trying to get a sense through Zoom, what is going on uh, just from a visual uh, as well as reading lots and lots of papers. I'm really looking forward to being able to get back out to meeting BOQ staff as well as their owner branch managers as well as customers. 
how do you, I guess, cope with getting thousands of pages of things to read before a board meeting and to to not be snowed by that and and to cut through it and to make meaningful decisions on the day? Yeah, so great question. And when I say thousands, it's not not always thousands, but it's always hundreds and hundreds of pages. Firstly, I'm a fast reader, which helps. So literally, it is a, a skill to develop being a fast reader. Secondly, I don't know how anyone could truly do justice given just the sheer burden of paper that comes through. I think the regulation probably is just demanding too much of hands-on touching and accountability by boards at the moment. I think it will be interesting over just time to see if it kind of normalises a little bit. In, In banking, it's very prescriptive what documents board members have to see. So you're kind of compelled to do it. But I, yeah, it's really hard to see how you can stand back and be strategic and focus on the key risks when there's so much governance to be gone through. Yeah, it does. I can sympathise with you there. I guess another sort of question that gets raised by our listeners around boards is who represents the retail investors? I mean, we're all shareholders, some of us are shareholders, some of our listeners are shareholders in Bank of Queensland. Who's standing up for their rights? You know, if the Bank of Queensland wants to raise capital, which it did for ME Bank, how, you know, who's looking out for the retail investors and making sure that they get equal access to the uh, capital raising, for example, amongst other things? I'm sure I can't talk about Bank of Queensland in particular, of course, Sorry, I mean, I literally can't talk about what happens within Bank of Queensland. I meant that literally. <laughs> All right, let's uh, hypothetically on a board, a listed board from your experience, who's, who's standing up for the little guy? We're, I mean, as a collective, we're probably 30 or 40% of shareholders, but uh, who's meant to be looking after our interests? Well, retail in, in Australia in particular, of course, in most big companies, retail investors are critical cohort of the shareholdings. So any decision that boards would make has to include the big groups of investors. So there there would be a specific discussion about how would retail investors feel about this? You know, how would each investor group feel about any decision? Yeah, I mean, we've uh, had a conversation with uh, Chairman Mab, the ASA chair about this and wondered whether the ASA Australian Shareholders Association shouldn't be demanding to uh, place a director on a board of a listed company if retail shareholders comprise more than 10%. That tends to be the threshold for having a director on the board. I mean, interesting question. It doesn't seem to be something the ASA has lobbied for in the past. No, no, they they haven't. It was just, I guess, a discussion we were having. In terms of strategy and managing the board, like... As investors, we pick and choose companies according to metrics and, uh, you know, to run through a couple of them, you know, the stock doctor health metrics around leverage and debt to equity, cash flow, all those kinds of things that give us a financial snapshot for the company. And then we have other metrics which look at the value of the company, dividend yield, things like that. How often would the board focus on trying to steer the company towards having a a financial healthy set of metrics. Is is that an overt thing? Yes, definitely. (laughs) So I would say at least every board meeting, which is once a month, but actually within meetings, between meetings rather, we get updates on all the competitors' uh, financial results and any announcements in the market. 
which tend to focus exactly on those metrics because they're the updates by the analysts that we see. Let me change tack here. Interest rates are rising. What does that mean for banking in general and, and listed banks in particular? So banks generally fare better in a rising rate interest rate environment, as as you know, directly there's an increase on the yield of the retail customer deposits and that flows straight through to the bottom line. Indirectly, raising interest rates environment tends to happen when there's economic expansion. When there's expansion, it's funded typically by loans or credit. And, And of course, that's where banks make so much of their money on the margin between the loan and the deposit rate. So banks do tend to do well because credit grows in an inflationary environment or a higher interest rate environment. Having said that, a counterbalance is that bad debt rises at some stage when interest rate rises. So if we get back to the 17% type interest rates, you, you can expect to see households and small businesses and even corporates hurting uh, if we get the really high interest rates when bad debts go up. Okay. You don't just sit on listed company boards. You're on the National Breast Cancer Research Foundation. What does that mean for you? Why breast cancer research and, and your involvement there? Yeah. So um, actually I go, I go tingly whenever anyone asks me about NBCF. So I'm honoured to serve on the board of National Breast Cancer Foundation. It is really world-class, game-changing research into stopping breast cancer. Close to my heart, of course, I had breast cancer, as did my sister and my mother. Very conscious that it's an obligation on me to try to help prevent breast cancer in our daughters, our nieces, in all young women. So for me, NBCF is the right organisation. I'm I'm very research oriented and NBCF is all about research. Also, for me, there's a good fit and I hope I can add the most value because I'm on I act as the chair of the Audit, Risk and Investment Committee so I can bring my banking and risk skills to the table. So we can expect to see a QAV policy adopted by the uh, investments at the (laughs) foundation? Uh, There may be some sort of third-party conflict of interest there, but I'd have to work my way through that. (laughs) And you've written a book called The Gist of Generosity, so you're obviously... Influenced by giving back, tell us what you mean by generosity. Thanks. I've always been fascinated by generosity, the the notion of generosity. I try to lead my life by the creed, treat others as you would have them treat you, but with generosity. So to me, treat others or as you would have, or do unto others as you would have them do unto you is about someone treats you a certain way, you, you treat, you give that back equally. But to me, generosity is going above that. And it's just helping because you can. So it's more, I guess, trying to generosity of spirit and just trying to make things better in small ways. I don't always get it right. <laughs> and and I found I have many conflicting roles between, you know, being a mum and a chief executive officer and now setting up small business. It, it's really hard to balance all the different often conflicting opinions and priorities, but I just find by trying to keep saying, have I done what I can to help someone else? It helps me navigate my way through. And and I should say, in terms of the definition I came up with, I'll read it out. Generosity is giving freely and unconditionally 
to help others live a happy, flourishing life. That's great. I'm glad glad at least one member of your household is generous, uh, Jenny, because <laughs> as QAV subscribers will know, Tony is uh, ruthless with his uh, information, keeping it close oh. to his chest. <laughs> Can we drill down into the generosity thing more, Jenny? Like when did, when and how did that start to become uh, something you thought deeply about? Dear Cam, so I was raised in the Presbyterian and then Uniting Church. So I was raised with the golden rule, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. I'm not really sure when I started turning that more into how how do you try to go a bit above that. It was early though, because when I wrote, started writing the book, I'd been keeping notes on what does generosity mean for decades. So I probably had at least 20 years worth of notes just when something would happen. I'd think, well, that's an example of generosity. So I don't really know where it came from, but just I was raised with it in a values sense. In terms of the book itself, it's an artist book. One of my girlfriends in Toronto is a fabulous designer. And so she designs the book using photos of art. So it's hopefully happy art that makes people think. And we put that together into an artist book with very few words, you'll be pleased to know. And you do know. I do. No, it's a, it's a fabulous book. And the generosity thing is interesting. We, we don't live in a world where generosity is something that gets talked about a great deal. I mean, it's, it's very much a dog-eat-dog, me, 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 what can I get world. So I, I find it really fascinating and inspiring that you're um, thinking a lot and, and, and talking a lot about that message. And sorry, our audience won't forgive me, of course, if I don't ask you to tell stories about Tony's Dirty Secrets. I'm not sure I would know them, Cam. Isn't the wife oh, asked to know? Oh, yeah, I should what, ask Ruddy. It's a secret. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but people will be seriously interested in your perspective on Tony's investing journey. We've heard it from Tony. We've heard it from a couple of other people like Alex Hay. It's all Alex Hay's doing, of course. Uh, <laughs> I think I seem to recall in his version of the story. You know, what's been your experience with Tony and investing over the last 30 years? Can you give us uh, what it's looked like from your side of the bed? Well, it's been very appealing from my side of the bed because Tony... <laughs> it is appealing from your side of the bed, darling. It's appealing <laughs> from mine too. It is. I had to stop there, didn't I? <laughs> Tony's done very well with his investing, so very appealing from my side of the bed. Having, But in a bit more detail... To start with, Tony, it all started when he took out a small loan and invested it very badly, yeah. is my recollection, and got a great learning from that. And then from that little, it was a small sum at the time, but which meant that we could afford to take it out and play with it and learn. And then over time, I think Tony is, is very curious and always wants to learn and always wants to get better. So I think he's really systematically gone about trying to codify his learnings on what to look for in stocks or in shares. So, gosh, breakthrough moments. I think when you discovered, Tony discovered Stock Doctor, that was a, a big deal. I think it gave you kind of, I think along the same way you do, and then you could use their infrastructure, I think was a, a big one. But he's incredibly rigorous and always has been. You know, it is a science-based discipline. So it's 
kind of having the courage of your convictions through the cycle, which Tony does, and, and he follows his formula and he tweaks the formula as there are learnings, but he's in very disciplined at not turning back from his own rules. And, you know, how much visibility have you had of this journey? Because the, the impression that I get from talking to Alex, and I know she's coming from a different perspective, but she was like, yeah, he never talks about it. I had no idea what he did until I heard the podcast. How much visibility? Like, is it the kind of thing you two would sit around at night over a bottle of wine and talk about? Or was you, you were too busy running banks and he was just off doing his own thing and, you know, keeping it to himself? Well, he's not secretive, but we do, we do have a division of labour in that, yes, we do describe ourselves as I'm P&L or cash flow as I go out and have had a day job and Tony manages the balance sheet, which is our share portfolio. He does that himself. We have very similar philosophies of share trading in that. And I know that because once a year, Tony writes up our share trading philosophy for um, our portfolio management. I am more risk averse than Tony, so I would be more likely to have probably more diversification and I would be less active in my management. But overall, we have very similar philosophy. And I think this is a case where, you know, you can't do this by committee. You need someone who who takes the lead and make the decisions. Otherwise, you just second guess yourself and lead to you just get regression to the mean. So no, Tony is not secretive about it. We talk about it. I hear about it a lot when the market does poorly or when the we have a really a great day or a really poor day. But uh, in terms of decision-making and, and running it, I literally get copied on emails of all the share trades that have, have happened, which, by the way, I don't look at. Yeah, right. Yeah, good policy right about now too. It's depressing. <laughs> That's the other question is uh, how do you feel about the fact that Tony forced you to go out and work all those years when he sat <laughs> sat at home and quote-unquote invested quote, slash played golf and drank wine? Uh, I love working. I love being in an organisation and working with the team of people, so that was my call. <laughs> Equally, Tony... It's just set up a world that works for him. So, you know, balanced mix of golf, horses, investment, being with friends and family. So, you know, I think it works for us. Very good. And you've got a wonderful daughter. I need to congratulate you while I've got the opportunity on your daughter is definitely one of my favourite people in the world. And I'm not saying that because she's going to transcribe this uh, <laughs> later on tonight and hear it. It's true. She knows that. We are incredibly fortunate to have a kind and generous and smart and loving. You forgot gorgeous too. She's pretty <laughs> gorgeous. Yeah, she's just about perfect. Sean's not in the background, is he? I don't want him to hear me say that, don't I? Come and beat me up. <laughs> I'm not sure what people know, Cam. I'm not sure what I'm allowed to oh, say okay. about <laughs> daughters right. and, and Okay, and edit others. that out then if uh, Alex from the transcript. <laughs> Hi, darling. <laughs> I guess I wanted to make sure before we sign off that uh, people know where to get the, your book, Gist of Generosity, from, Jen, because there's still lots of copies sitting in uh, Leanne's garage. <laughs> in the garage. There is a website called The, the Gist of Generosity, so thegistofgenerosity.com. <laughs> there's no U in the word generosity. And the 2B URL is just to the letter B or to letter B, letter E? So 2b.com.au, so it's the number two, letter b, letter e, dot com, dot au. 
And is the or not to be coming next? Is that the is that the question? <laughs> That's absolutely where it comes from, to be or not to be, which is also one of our real sayings is seize the day. We're 55 plus. We've got to seize the day. All right. Good stuff. Anything else, Tony? No, no, I'm done. I'll see you tonight, hon. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for coming on, Jenny. We appreciate it. And good luck with 2B. Yes, thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Jenny Fagg. Don't forget to uh, check out her book, thegistofgenerosity.com. Check out 2B Finance. Uh, And uh, as I said at the beginning, our schedule, our recording schedule, publishing schedule is going to be a little bit wonky. Please bear with us over the next uh, three or four weeks while I'm traveling. I will be working, uh, we'll be doing all our usual newsletters and episodes, but, you know, they may come out a couple of days later than they normally would or earlier, uh, just depending on where I'm at. Uh, When I'm hiking in the Grand Canyon, I probably won't put anything out, but uh, the rest of the time, uh, hopefully you won't notice much of a blip. I might be a little bit slow replying to Facebook messages and emails and that kind of stuff. Uh, Please uh, 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 forgive me in advance. All right, that's it. I'm out of here. Got to jump on a plane. I'll be back next week. The QAV podcast is a production of Spacecraft Publishing Proprietary Limited, authorised representative of AFSL 520442, AFS representative number 00129217. Please don't make any investment decisions based solely on listening to this podcast. This is presented as general advice only, not personal financial advice. We don't know your personal financial circumstances. Please see a financial planner before making any investing decisions. Thank you.